Well, this morning we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus speaks very directly to us today. And we're in that section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is going to deal with very practical issues about how we conduct our lives. The last time we were in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at the issue of anger as being murder of the heart. And to get into today's subject, I want to share with you a story that I think uh, puts in perspective Jesus' teaching for us today. About 20 years ago, during the events of 9-11, White House officials were escorted down into a secret bunker. And they were there to be protected from any kind of further attack or vulnerability. Well, as they remained in the bunker, the air and the water supply started to thin out. And they had to pick and choose who would stay in the bunker, who would have to go. The officials were in danger of suffocating in the very place that was designed to provide maximum safety and security. The officials were in danger of suffocating in the place where there was supposed to be maximum safety and security. This, I think, provides a good picture of our culture's reaction to the Bible's teaching about sexuality, and specifically here in our passage about sexual desire and divorce. The Bible doesn't seem to make room for people to just be themselves, to be who they really are, even to really breathe. The Bible's teaching about sexuality seems to suffocate rather than help sustain us. Now I'm wondering if based on where you are in your life right now, how you hear Jesus' teaching this morning. Do you too find Jesus' words to be suffocating like the White House officials found the ex- their experience in the bunker? Maybe you're a student and you've developed an attraction to someone and you want to start dating and you're wondering, is Jesus against this attraction? Maybe you're in a dark place in your marriage and you're thinking, has, re- has Jesus really sentenced me a lifetime of this? Or maybe you're divorced or you've been single for a very long time And you're saying to yourself, how is it fair that I have to restrain my sexual desires when other people don't have to live like this? Couldn't we just skip this part of the Sermon on the Mount, says the assistant pastor assigned to preach on these verses. (laughs) These topics are very controversial. They are complicated and they can be very painful. There's no way in one sermon to answer all the possible questions that we might have about what Jesus says here. So I wanna invite you to have an ongoing conversation with us. Uh, I'm gonna be around after the service. You can also email me. I prefer you email Pastor Tracy and Jim, but you can email me about the sermon if you want. And let's find a time to talk about this together. Now, before I jump in, I want to provide two brief comments that will help get us started. First, we aren't the first ones Jesus' teaching has hit hard. Jesus preaches the sermon within the Roman Empire, within that culture. And in that culture, 
men were permitted to have sexual relations outside of their marriage. There were ways to do that that were socially acceptable. And not only is Jesus sort of at a step with Roman culture, he's even at a step with the popular Jewish understandings of marriage in that time as well. You see, in the Jewish culture at that time, there were many reasons why people would have been permitted to get a divorce. So you see, whether if it's in our time now or Jesus' time then, Jesus' teaching has never really been at home in this world. And the reason for that is because his kingdom is not of this world. We have to keep that in mind. That's the first comment. Here's the second. Let me remind you what Matthew tells us about Jesus before he gets started in preaching this sermon. At the end of Matthew chapter four, Matthew tells us that Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and healed every disease and every affliction among the people. His fame spread throughout all of Syria and they brought their sick to him, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains. And what does Jesus do? He heals them. Jesus addresses the topic of sexual desire and divorce, not to break open old wounds, but to heal open sores. He wants to mend us in the parts of our lives that are broken, and he wants to give us light where our culture is confused. So with those two comments in mind, let's go ahead and take a look at what Jesus says here under three headings this morning. First, we're gonna wanna look at God's commands that we find in the Old Testament. Second, we're gonna look to Jesus' call to the transformation of heart. And third, we're gonna look at Jesus' counsel to us. First, let's look at God's commands. Jesus starts his teaching in this way in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Here, Jesus is quoting from the seventh commandment. Then in verse 31, look at what he says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Here Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Both are from the law of Moses. Now the very next thing Jesus says about uh, after each of these commands is, but I say to you. Now on the surface, it sounds like Jesus is negating God's commands. Like when my children come up to me and they say, I know you asked me to go to bed and I know it's a school night, but I don't want to. (laughs) But I say to you, I will not. No, that's, that's not what's going on here with Jesus. He isn't abolishing the law with his teaching. He's actually accomplishing it. Matthew 5, 17 says this, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Nothing will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. So when Jesus says, but I say to you, it's actually in response to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees of that time. They were confused about God's law, and Jesus is providing clarity for us this morning. Now earlier, we read from Genesis chapter 2. And this is one of the most important passages that will help us understand Jesus' view of sexuality. 
In fact, you might even say that the whole reason Jesus quotes the law of Moses is to get us to think about Adam and Eve. Think about this. Why do we give commands? We give commands when something is disordered from their original intent, and that was the function of the law of Moses. And so Jesus is drawing our attention back to this original story. In Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus addresses marriage in another place, he'll actually quote from the story we just read in Genesis chapter 2. So let's take a look at that together this morning for a few minutes. First of all, the first sentence we read in our passage this morning is quite astounding. Did you hear it? The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. The first human is living in paradise with God, and yet he experiences being alone. How could that be? Do you know what that experience of aloneness means? Well, at its very root, the experience of being alone means that we desire intimacy with one another. Not just simply sexual intimacy, but intimacy among friends and family relationships as well. It is basic to being human to want to share our lives with people. And I think during the pandemic, we really became aware of that need in our lives, didn't we? You see, as we grow up and our sexual feelings and attraction develop, we learn that God created us for us to give and to receive love with our bodies and our souls. Our bodies, in the way that they have been created in and of themselves, tell us to whom we are supposed to join. So God creates Eve for Adam. She is like him in that she also bears God's image, yet she is unlike him because her body is a fit for him. He can join her in soul and body. God calls this joining of soul and body together marriage. It's an unbreakable unity where a man and a woman can give and receive love for the rest of their lives together. You see, sex between a husband and a wife is the sign of marriage in the Bible. To have sex is to communicate with our bodies that we are married. And if we have sex outside the context of marriage, we are in essence lying with our bodies, lying with our very being. If you've ever been to a wedding ceremony or attended one before, it could be a very awkward thing with the bride and the groom standing up there wearing clothes that they'll never ever wear again for the rest of their lives. And they're standing before the pastor and all they really do is say a few words. I do and I will. And God binds their lives together and for the rest of their lives, they are one flesh on the best of days and on the worst of days. And all they did was just say a few words together. They made a promise. For the rest of their marriage, whenever they have sexual union, 
they live out what God has declared them to be at the wedding altar, a one flesh unity, where they can give and receive love with one another. Sex actually carries the sign of the gospel with it. Sex is a sign that we are to give of ourselves, and in the giving of ourselves, we also receive. It is such a powerful bond, and it is such a sacred bond, that sexual union has the potential to create life that bears the very image of God our creator. Marriage is an indissolvable unity. But marriage is also profound on this level as well. It is what points to the sign of God's love towards us. Just like in marriage, God commits to us every day, whether we are at our worst or at our best. In Jesus, he gives up his own life to save us. Our lives are joined to him and nothing can separate us from his love. Listen to how God describes his relationship to his people in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And in the New Testament, one of the titles for the bride of Christ, sorry, one of the titles for the church is the bride of Christ. So when Jesus quotes God's law here in regards to sexual desire in marriage, it isn't about suffocating demands. It's putting a frame around the beautiful portrait of God's vision for marriage for all of us to see. Marriage just doesn't tell us about human sexuality, about human love. It ultimately reveals to us the very beauty of God's love for us. Jesus is protecting the beautiful vision of marriage God has for us. Now in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says this, what God has put together, let no one separate. So that's why uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount here specifically cites the command against adultery and divorce because both those things rip apart the one flesh unity that is in marriage. Adultery is when a husband or a wife joins themselves to someone who is not their spouse as if they were their spouse. It breaks down the promises of marriage and it hurts the children of the family. Adultery is so heinous in God's eyes that it is the ground in which divorce is permissible where the one flesh union splits back into two in the presence of God. If you've ever talked to people who've ever had to go through the pain of a divorce, they often describe it as being ripped apart. And Jesus here is trying to help us to avoid the pain that comes from that at all costs. That's why he gives us this teaching. Now, when we take a step back and look at the biblical vision for sexuality and marriage, it can be both sublime and sobering for us. I know it is for me. So let me just share with you about what I hope you would take away from the sermon so far this morning before we get to the heart of what Jesus talks about. First is this. 
if you are at the age where you're thinking about dating or you are dating, I want you to know that the desire to be in a relationship with someone is a God-given desire. It is a good thing. The desire for intimacy is part of how God created us. The story of Adam and Eve shows us that God isn't interested in depriving us of anything that is good. He always wants us to love in ways that reflect his love in the world. So that means in regards to our sexual desires, they are best expressed in a marriage that points to God's eternal love. Now, if you are married, have you considered the powerful gospel meaning of your one flesh union? Or have you neglected it? Have you thought about your joint life together as an ongoing picture of God's covenantal love for you? Have you considered the profound meaning of what it means when you are together as a husband and a wife? That's the beautiful picture that Jesus paints for us here. If we're married. Now third, if you are called to singleness now, or you have been for your lifetime, I want you to know that as you obey Jesus' teachings and you obey him here and refrain from sexual practice, you embody right now in your life with Christ how we will all one day be when we stand before him. Married people will not be bonded in eternity but we will all live together married to Christ and in the love of the church just like single Christians have to do day in and day out. Your presence with us is a picture of eternity in our midst and your painful sacrifice that you are making now will not be in vain when the eternal kingdom comes. Now secondly, Let's take a look at what Jesus, how Jesus calls us to live in light of God's commands. Earlier in chapter five, Jesus says this, blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. To be the kind of people who will enjoy God's presence in his eternal kingdom, we need to be transformed, not just externally, but from the inside out. And that is what Jesus calls us to here. In verse 28, he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then in verse 32, he says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now, in Matthew 19, verse 8, we get a little bit more of what Jesus says about divorce. And I want to put that in here so you can see the heart connection. He says this to the Pharisees, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So you see, it's about the heart. It would be easy to look at Jesus' commands and to say, okay, I haven't committed adultery, check, I'm good. Haven't gotten divorced, I'm still married, okay, I'm good here too. But that's not what, what the true vision of 
sexual of sexuality is about in God's word. Because we know that a surface level obedience doesn't bring about heartfelt joy. And that's what God wants us to have in our sexuality, in our marriages. Now Jesus is not equating the act of a lustful heart thinking to the same act as actually committing adultery. They're not morally equal. But what he is saying is this, lust and adultery start to saw away at the bond between a husband and a wife. Even if a person never finds an opportunity to commit adultery, they have already resolved in their heart to do what the seventh commandment forbids. And that's the problem with it. So what exactly does Jesus mean when he talks about lust? Lust is the taking in of another person with our eyes for our own gratification. Lust, unlike love, typically jumps around to find new experiences of pleasure. When I was in Philadelphia, I would take the train to work, and um, I would often see people sitting in their, in, their, uh, train, in their seats playing scratch-off tickets. And it was interesting because if they thought they were winning, they had this big expression of happiness. They had big smiles on their faces as they were scratching off each of the cards. But the moment they discovered they had lost, they mindlessly dropped the lottery tickets and walked away coldly. It's a picture of what lust is. Right? We take in people into our minds for what we need and then we discard them. Lust is the gratification that, sorry, the moment lust loses gratification, it looks for something new to take in. It treats people as objects rather than subjects of God's love. The obvious example of this in our society is pornography. Now, I want us to understand what Jesus says here. He's not saying that a fleeting glance uh, that quickly goes away is what lust is. If you have an awareness of someone's beauty, if you're walking down Nassau Street and you're aware of someone's profile and you've then focused your attention on something else, it's not the awareness of beauty that is the problem. It's not noticing that someone is attractive, that that's the problem. That level of awareness develops with us as we grow up. It's not the first look that that's a problem. It's the second and third look. It's the repeated taking in of the image into your mind for your own gratification. Now, the, the classic example of this in the Bible is the story of David and Bathsheba, where we see how an awareness of beauty leads to the adultery of heart, which actually leads to the committing of adultery. Listen to how the narrator in 2 Samuel 11, in just two verses, gets at the heart of how this progresses within the human heart. He says this, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And then, in just the next three verses, we learn that he commits adultery with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, and then plans the murder of her husband. Here's the question. 
what's going on in David's mind between the time that he gets off the couch and he goes to the rooftop? Is his heart already filled with lust? Is he just aimless? Is he not aware of himself at all? You see, when we fall into lustful thinking, we often have little awareness of how we've gotten there. So from his rooftop, he can see all of Jerusalem, and he's gazing out into the distance. Things are unfocused. Things are blurry. But then he sees a person bathing. It's a woman. There's the awareness. And he notices that she is very beautiful. The commentators note that the word beautiful uh, there used is one that focuses on the aspect of physical beauty. That's the second look. Within a matter of a second, he crosses over from awareness to the adultery of the heart. And then within a matter of minutes, he will cross over into actual adultery. And then within a matter of hours, he's planning the act of murder. Just like that. That's how quickly things can progress. So let me ask you this morning. Do you know when your heart moves from awareness to the adultery of the heart? When you find yourself lusting, do you repent quickly? Are you, or are you making the same mistake as David and just letting it see where it takes you? You see, the story of David and Bathsheba shows us that how we even think about another person's body matters to God. To take in another person's body that is not our spouse for our pleasure is an act of not only dishonoring them, it's an act of dishonoring God. It doesn't matter if other people invite us for that kind of interaction because we don't accept invitations that break God's commandments. That's the reason why, why lust is such a problem. Now we've only been really talking about physical appearance as the trigger for lust. There are other kinds of lust that are problematic other than physical attraction. You see, we can experience adultery of the heart when we want to spend time with someone that is not our spouse. You want to see a coworker at church or a coworker in the workplace or a person at church because they give you something emotionally. You're looking, for some, you're looking for them to give you something emotionally that you haven't had with your spouse in a while. You substitute thoughts of them with the thoughts. Uh, you, su- you substitute the thoughts of your spouse uh, for your thoughts of them. See, that is how it can lead into a progression of the adultery of the heart. Jesus knows that when we start to fall into these kinds of thinking patterns, we're already moving away from that one flesh union that marriage communicates. And as long as your heart is not directed to your spouse, your marriage cannot provide the fulfillment we see depicted in the Garden of Eden because you're split. You're a split person in in that time. And the reality is, that the longer you are married, the more it will take time to cultivate and to direct your sexual desire for your spouse exclusively. If you're in a stressful season with children, if you're physically suffering, 
if you're fighting with your spouse, it can be challenging to stoke the flames of love that was once there when you were first married. But Jesus is calling us to experience unity within our being by directing both our bodies and our affections exclusively for our spouses. Now maybe on the worst days of your marriage, you've had the thought of calling it quits. But then maybe you said, no Lord, I'm sorry. I don't wanna do that. Well, if you thought like that, I want you to know that you are far more shaped by the teachings of Jesus than you know. You see, in Jesus' day, divorce was both easily accessed and eagerly sought after. According to the most popular interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, men could have hand their wives a certificate of divorce for any reason they saw fit. In response to the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? One Jewish teacher answered, uh, answered it in this way that really encapsulates the spirit of the age at that time. He says this, yes, for any cause whatsoever. Those causes, those reasons for divorce back in Jesus' time could be anything like uh, seeing a physical defect in your spouse or finding something as trivial as them burning a dish those can be the grounds for divorce in Jesus' day. So what Jesus does by restricting divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality is he actually achieves very remarkable things here. First, here's what he does. He restores the sacred meaning of marriage that we read about in Genesis chapter two. It's not something we are to enter in lightly, and it's not something we are to end for any reason whatsoever, and if at all possible, by the grace of God, not at all. Second, what he says actually protects married women from being easily discarded and, and in a place in which they had an unmarried woman had no place in society. You see, in Jesus' day, divorced women did not have any property rights or means of making an income. Only if there has been an adultery does Jesus permit the end of a marriage. Otherwise, her husband is to remain with her and to provide for her, to continue to care for her as his own flesh. His self-centeredness is not grounds for divorce. Now third, notice that if there is a divorce, other than on the grounds of sexual immorality, that that divorce puts the husband at fault here. He makes the woman commit sexual, uh, commit adultery. You see, most around Jesus believe husbands could divorce their wives for any reasons, but Jesus is not only saying, you can't do that, in fact, if you do, you are morally responsible for her committing adultery. And then if another, another man comes in and tries to marry her, he's responsible for committing adultery. So you see what Jesus does in these few verses? He protects the vision of marriage we see laid out in the garden. He calls men accountable for their behavior and to be responsible for the wives that they've been called to love and to cherish. And he elevates the role of women to be protected and nurtured in their marriages, not to be discarded at all.
It's pretty amazing he does that in two verses, isn't it? Now, there are many questions to answer in regards to this, but I just want to answer one obvious one right now. Are there other grounds to seek a divorce other than when a guilty spouse commits adultery, sexually, is sexually immoral? And the short answer is yes. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that if an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, the believing spouse is free to marry. If a marriage is deserted, then the one flesh union has been broken. And pastorally speaking, I don't think we should restrict the meaning of abandonment to simply the understanding of desertion. If marriage is a one flesh union, then someone who persistently abuses their spouse in various ways has already abandoned their marriage. John Davis in his book, Evangelical, uh, Evangelical Ethics, makes this comment. Behavior such as persistent physical abuse is a violation of the marriage covenant and indicates that true consent is not given to live in harmony with a believing spouse. So Jesus, although he says here, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, the scriptures make another provision for divorce. Now by way of application, Let's look lastly at Jesus' counsel in regards to sexual desire and divorce. When you combine verses 29 and 30, here's what you get when you put them together. If your right eye or hand causes you to sin, tear them out and throw them away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You see, what Jesus says here displays his remarkable wisdom and believe it or not, his amazing compassion. You see, when we fall into bottomless sins like lust that, that feed our unquenchable desires, we need to be woken up out of our stupor to get out of it. So Jesus commands immediate amputation of infected body parts to wake us up, to get us out of the fog. If a doctor came up to you and said, we're gonna have to cut off your hand or we're gonna have to gouge out your eye today, I think they would have your undivided attention until they divided it anyway. You see, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's making a dramatic statement. Thanks for the laughing on the pun. That's, that helps. Okay. He's making a dramatic statement here. He has our attention, but his brief statement targets the core issue with lust or actually what causes us to sin on a daily, with actually what causes us to sin on a daily basis. In effect, what he says poses this question to us. To what lengths are you willing to go to deal with your problem of lust? As, a, as someone who has worked in counseling, what I can honestly say is that there is no moment of transformation that occurs until a person says about this particular problem, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make this better because that communicates a serious commitment. Jesus is asking, do you see your sin as such a problem in your relationship with God and others that you would go to the greatest lengths to do anything to get rid of it so that you could enjoy the everlasting joy of my kingdom? If we say to Jesus, I don't know, I'm not really sure here, then we're ambivalent. 
we reveal that we don't have an undivided heart for him. We're trying to hold on to his kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven and hell at the same time, and it doesn't work. But if we say to Jesus, I'll do whatever it takes, even if it means cutting off my hand or gouging out my eye, metaphorically speaking, the fact that we're willing to go to any lengths to resolve the issue means that we are opened up to a world of resources of help and comfort. An open heart like that to the help of Jesus Christ is fertile soil in which the Holy Spirit can sow his fruit so that we can overcome our sins. Jesus wants to give you that greater gift of his kingdom rather than the short-term satisfaction of satisfying your lusts. Now I'm going to apply this in a few ways. First is this. If you struggle with looking at pornography, and this is an ongoing problem for you, are you willing metaphorically to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to rid yourself of this problem, to install software on your computer, to switch to an antiquated flip phone, to enter an accountability group? What are the steps you are willing to take to deal with this problem in your life? If you say to Jesus, I'm willing to cut off my hand and gouge out my eye, those other steps are, are far shorter measures than that because Jesus wants us to be made whole. Now let's suppose you're, you're in a dating relationship or you're thinking about being in a dating relationship and you're wondering, well, what am I gonna do with sexual temptation? You say to Jesus, I'm willing to cut off my hand and gouge out my eye to enter into your kingdom. Well, that must mean then, at the very least, you're willing to hang out with the other person only during certain hours of the day. Avoid certain outings that, that may tempt you to go out on group dates. You see, what we fail to understand is that those kinds of practices in your dating life actually will help you in your marriage. Why is that? Well, because marriage is about, the, the joy of marriage is found in self-sacrifice. And if you're not in the habit of denying your impulses and your desires, then when you get into marriage and you're in a rough patch, you're gonna act out on those impulses and desires and it's not gonna be a good thing. You see, this is a training in godliness. That's why we restrain our sexual impulses until we are married. Now third, I wanna say a, a word about how this applies to marriage as well. While Jesus permits divorce, he never recommends it. Instead, what he says encourages us to build the healthiest marriage we can possibly can. Do whatever it takes. Whatever, whatever you'll need. Don't go at it alone. Marriages that have been troubled for years can be revived by Christ's spirit in powerful ways when two people are willing to make it work. I've seen it happen. And Jesus Christ has more grace for you in your marriage than you could ever imagine. So I want to encourage you that if your marriage is in a troubled spot, don't let it stay there. 
Instead, this is an opportunity to bring the very redemptive work of Jesus Christ in the hardest place of your life. And he can do that. And we can help you as a church find ways to do that as well. Now to close, I've never known anyone who hasn't, or I've never known anyone who's been perfect in keeping Jesus' commands, any of them. And that includes in regards to sexuality as well. So no matter where or when you've fallen into sin, your sin isn't any less cause for him to love you. In fact, when you feel worst about your sexual sins, that's actually the moment that Jesus wants to be close to you, closer than ever before. We are married to Christ. He has not left his bond to us. Though we may leave our bond to him, he has never left us. He is always a faithful spouse for you to return to, even if you have been unfaithful to him. And repentance is the way in which we get back to him. Now in just a moment, when we celebrate this Lord's Supper, this meal communicates that Jesus Christ has covenanted with us. He's all in with us. So will you respond in faith and humility and return to him and be faithful to him in all the ways he calls you to, whatever the cost? That is the joy that awaits us when he will bring his eternal kingdom that we could experience right now as we are obedient to him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, you are a good creator who has given us uh, sexuality, who has given us marriage, who has given us sexual desires as a picture of what your love is towards us. How our bodies communicate a deep meaning of the gospel. Lord Jesus, we in, in our culture and we within our hearts, we find it so hard to follow you in this teaching. But Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to honor one another and to honor you in this ways because you are worth it. Your kingdom is worth it. And we thank you that what awaits us as we live as your children is an eternal weight of glory that will never compare to any momentary pleasure of sin. So would you strengthen each of us and as a body to pursue purity in this way. In your holy name we pray, amen.